0: If you're listening to this episode, thank you for supporting the podcast. These bonus episodes are made to give something back to the members of our podcast, or you may be someone that's just listening after we've released it to the general public at a much later date. If you would like to become a member and get these episodes as soon as they come out, head to our Buy Me A Coffee page, which is at Coffee or one word, forward slash UK wildlife Pod. This episode is the rest of our conversation with Mike Dilger, where we chat Dragonflies, garden visitors, and just have a really long natter about lots of natural history stuff. Before finishing, we've chatting about getting into natural history media and some advice on writing a book like his. So make sure you've listened to episode 83 first and enjoy this episode. Nah, uh, well we always we have a, a jokey tagline mm-hmm. for the podcast, which is birds are boring compared to all the other <laughs> stuff, especially <laughs> <the> invertebrates. <laughs> And and the amphibians,
1: of course, with it. So and frogs. That's yeah. a that's I have a healthy obsession. obsession, obsession. Frogs,
2: so, yeah. I have newts in my pond, so I never get frogs. Smooth yeah. newts.
1: We had a new years and when I first built the pond, the first year the pond was built, we had a newt. Never seen it again, and now the frogs yeah. We've,
2: I, I put frogs born in. We so had loads of froglets, but I never got frogs back because the the newts, the smooth newts, just are there in such abundance. They just clear up on all the frogs born and the tadpoles. So. But I mean, yeah, so as you guys, I've got a wildlife pond. It's, it's, it's amazing.
1: Oh, brilliant. Well, we actually we had a first last year. It actually appeared 10 days after I had my surgery. And I was sitting in the garden and a grass snake appeared in my garden. Wow. And I've, I've had two grass snakes, a little baby one that comes and sits and bark. watching you not know, by the pond at the moment because blinking freezing mm. outside. But yeah, last year I had two grass snakes. Pit in the garden i've rescued
2: two grass snakes from gardens um nearby and i've put them into my garden but never seen them back um yeah that's oh, a quality kind one i'm
1: intrigued to see if they intrigued to see if they come back this year i will be here part of the year so i'll be able to see they might
2: be in your compost
1: i don't have a compost. oh you need
2: to get a composting oh yeah, bob flower bob flower book on composting yeah. he's 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 a legend
1: yeah, i'll our garden's not that big though, so. It's... You don't
2: need you don't need much room for a bit of compost.
1: The prior the priority was the pot. <laughs> okay, I'll <laughs> let you <laughs> off. I had
0: a bag of compost and I found a grass snake in it, so just get a bag of compost and <laughs> skip out the middle man.
1: Yeah, but I I do have bee orchids and I get the grass snakes anyway. I've got the frogs and. Don't forget a yeah.
0: certain blue butterfly.
1: Oh yeah, I also have small blue butterflies. In the
2: small garden. blue in the garden.
1: Yeah. Wow, that is amazing. Bloody hell. The first. First ever record of a small blue butterfly in a garden in the area. Because small
2: blues don't move more than about 50, 50 yards from where they supposedly hatch, do they? That's amazing.
1: No. so we've we've had it for three years. Have you got it- a colony nearby? Yes, well, we must have, but I've never found it.
2: Oh, amazing. I've had common blue once or twice, and holly blue, of course, and holly blue will be coming out fairly soon, but... Um, Certainly, never small yes. blue. I've, only, I've small. only seen it a few occasions.
1: Yeah, small blue. Three years running now, so hopefully I'll be back in there. We go.
2: Get here with your bee or kids and your small blue butterflies. <laughs> Just trump me. Best I can do is a wall brown
0: butterfly, and I do have a colony of red mason bee. I've got a colony oh, yeah. of at least a hundred in my garden. So that's my and a wall carder bees come visit every year as well. So I'm quite pleased with that. but... Yeah, wall-browns quite rare in Essex outside brownfield sites, so I'm quite lucky to have it in my garden. So,
2: That is quite... The, I mean, I have to go to the coast where really you'd see wall-browns. Uh, That's a, that a good bird. That's a good butterfly. I mean, yeah, I mean, you guys are trumping me on the invertebrates there. I've had some nice dragonflies in my garden.
0: And, and you know the, you know, beautiful damoiselle. You know the story about um, dragonflies in my garden, don't you, Mike? That I've had a, a pond since I've been here, so nearly 10 years. Mm. How many dragonfly and damselfly species do you think I've had around my pond?
2: I've had, I think, about 11 round mine. So I'm going to guess probably where you live, 14? Zero. Really? Zero.
0: I've had them on my hedge. I've had darts around the <sighs> garden, an Emperor, Migrant Hawker, Southern Hawker flying around over the garden, a possible Southern Migrant Hawker once, but I'm pretty sure it was just a Migrant looking back. Do they not breed in the ponds at all? Nothing. I've even put a few nymphs in with weed and stuff. Um, What's going on? home And I've never seen... My wife once saw a four-spotted chaser near the pond. We think might yeah. have come out of it from a nymph I might have put in there. That's it. they just show no interest in my pond. It doesn't help that my father-in-law insisted on putting a uh, small shed, like the kids' shed, to the south of the pond, which probably is shading it a bit. But even before oh, that, no? they never showed any interest. It's really weird.
2: Large red, azure, blue... Uh, broad-bodied chaser, four-spotted chaser, southern hawker, migrant hawker, beautiful damoiselle coming down as well. Um, I've got quite quite a few more as well. I've had loads in the pond. I get broad-bodied chasers every year, and um, southern mi- southern uh, southern hawkers, migrant hawkers, and three species of blue, bloody hell. blue-tailed, of course, as well.
1: See, so we we we've only got like a teen. Like our pond is like maybe a meter square by maybe a metre deep. Mm-hmm. It's really not very big. But there are, actually, I meant to mention this to you, you know, we do have damselfly nymphs in the pond. Rub it in. Because I've seen them when I've gone out at night.
0: Rub it in. See, see what it is, is they have more um, respect but... for photographers of dragonflies, the president of the British Dragonfly Society, which Mike is, if you don't realise, I didn't know if you knew that, but zero respect for the Essex recorder. That's just, you know.
2: Yeah, it's just there rude. we go. <laughs>
0: I was the first That's person in Essex to see a southern emerald damselfly, and they've shown me no respect.
2: That's astonishing. That I can't believe. It. What's wrong with the water?
0: No, it's full of pond. It's full of full of pond. <laughs> full of ponds. <laughs> full of frogs. Literally, <laughs> I get double figure clumps of frog spawn. And I do. I have done it, given it a couple of deep cleans. Where I've emptied it out and refilled it. But it's only rainwater. Only native plants. Uh, plenty. There's probably not enough... Maybe I should put a few more emergence in there, but it's had emergence in there in the past and they've shown no interest. So
2: Are the frogs clearing out all the invertebrates in there?
0: Possible, I suppose, but you, you think there's enough cover in there with the leaves that the dragonfly nymphs would be doing the opposite and having a field day. Hmm. And there's also no very few diving beetles, which, you know, great diving beetle found that pond. It was a smorgasbord for their larva. And I wonder if it's something to do with... Where it's quite close to a hedge and a fence, mm. it's in, it's interfering with the polarized light reflecting off it because a lot of these pond creatures, certainly water boatmen, use polarized light yeah. to locate them. That's why they crash into yeah. carbonates and stuff, isn't it? You know. And
2: I found um, I, each each year I find at least fifteen or twenty exuviae of, exuvia of migrant hawker emerging out of the plants. Yeah, yeah. Never you poor, poor, poor dragonflyless fellow. I know it's
0: terrible. You, I live in like one of the best counties for dragonflies, so I can't really moan. I, of course i just got to go down the road and um, <laughs> have access to some amazing sites within 20 minutes of my house, so I can't moan. That's why I did the Dragonfly tour. I could get most of them in Kent and Essex without even trying, and then... Bit further, you know, actually, actually closer to go to some bits of Surrey than some bits of Suffolk for me. So, um
2: did you get? All, did you get? um Brilliant emerald and um, oh, I got all that oh, yes. emerald. Brilliant
0: emerald is the reason I didn't get white faced data because the weekend I was meant to get white face data, I had to go back because my brilliant emeralds from Fursley, on close inspection, turned out to be blooming downies with um, with the with the eyes colour that looked a bit like um, brilliant. Right, but when. Because the problem is when they're in the shade, it's not so easy to tell them apart. But um, sure, yeah, that was uh, quite fun.
2: I think I tried to do it one year. I didn't think I saw anywhere near all of them, but I saw a lot. Hmm.
0: Well, the main aim, first of all, of that dragonfly tour was to tick off northern emerald and azure hawker which, to complete my list. So I've seen all the spe- British species apart from the um, rarer vagrant ones. Um, now I've seen all the. Have pre- you seen?
2: Have you seen scarce blue tailed?
0: Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I know I, could, I could take you straight to a site in New Forest and find those in the right time. That'll be a new one for me. Oh, well, there you go, Mike.
2: One there for we Sam go. One. Yeah, do um, a podcast on that one. Yeah. Get in there.
0: Um,
1: well, you're supposed to be coming down to sunset levels yes, as well Nick. Uh, when we finish in recording,
0: May. we have a chat about that, Mike. Yeah, mm-hmm. we might be able to sync calendars, hopefully. But um, we'll do
2: some do some um, dovetailing. I'd love that.
0: Yeah, let's let's move on to your broadcasting. That this will be part of the bonus episodes. probably our first ever one actually i think this will be um so i hope uh, our members the members on the buy me a coffee are enjoying the episode so far um so like how did you end up doing broadcasting
2: well i was oh, where do i start how do I end up on the television well i was working as a. I um i did my first degree in botany at nottingham university uh, and then I worked in conservation organisations for a few years, so I worked for the Wildlife Trust, worked for Butterfly Conservation, um, worked for the BTCV, the British Trust for Conservation Volunteers, as they were back in the day. And then I went back to university, to back to Bangor, up in North Wales, to do a mass...
1: No way! Way!
2: Is that where you were?
1: No. Yeah, Zoology with Marine Zoology.
2: Oh, Marine Zoo, Zoo. I did my yeah. MSc, my Master's in Ecology there, Victoria, in 1996. And it was part of the taught course was doing um, a thesis, a Master's thesis, a project. And I did mine on in, in Ecuador with three other students. We went to the cloud forests of Ecuador and I did mine on the biodiversity of Macro Lepidoptera, which is moths in the cloud forests of ecuador ecuador in northwest south america which is straddles the andes and has a chunk of the amazon rainforest and had an amazing time there and did my master's thesis and then worked in the amazon doing bird survey work and thought oh my god this i don't want to spend my life looking at birds around the world so i came back got a job and then i went to work in vietnam for a year came back got a job went back out, went, went out to Tanzania for a year. So in the space of four years, I'd spent a year, six months in Ecuador, a year in Vietnam and a year in Tanzania. And then I thought, well, I want to have one last stint. And I loved Ecuador, so I'll go back. And I got a job working as a resident biologist at a cloud forest reserve, halfway up the western slopes of the Andes. While I was working there, Channel 5 were making a series called Eco Warriors, all about Brits working in the back of beyond. And they said, can we come to the reserve and meet you and talk about your job, about what you do as a biologist, a British biologist working abroad. So I said, yeah, sure. So uh, there was a cameraman and a sound recordist and a director. And I met up with them, uh, took them out to the reserve and we wandered around for a couple of days, filming some wildlife, filming some shots of the reserve. And the time came to interview me and they said, it's obvious, Mike, you like birds. I said, (laughs) yeah, I like my birds. I'm going to stop filming, turn the camera over, not the camera over, but turn the tape over, make sure we're clear for sound. And can you, when I say action, can you stop talking about the birds? I said, sure. And the director, Rob, Rob Sullivan, who's still in television said, can you maybe do impersonations of the birds? I said, yeah. So he said, okay, turn over camera, uh, clear for sound, sound recorded, with so his boom, and action. I said, oh, there's an amazing bird here called the Andean cock of the rock. Bright fuchsia pink all over, black and silver wings, massive crest, yellow feet and a white eye. That's the males. The females are dull, boring and dowdy. But they have this lecking bird. So every day, dawn and dusk, they go to the same ancestral lecking tree. 10 or 15 males, they've all got their own position within the tree and they flap their black and silver wings and make this weird noise, particularly when a female turns up. So the females are dull, boring, and dowdy, olive green in coloration. But a female turns up in the adjacent tree, and the males have noticed, and their crest goes up, and they go oh, up, oh, up. like that. And I started doing impersonation of the birds, and the director was, Right? Anymore? I so, said, Oh, yeah, there's a beautiful bird called a toucan barbit very very localized found in northwest ecuador southwest Colombia, on the western slopes of the andes between about 1200 meters and about 2000 meters in this cloud forest where all the rare clouds sit in the canopy the world epicenter for orchids and bromeliads and hummingbirds and this bird is just stunning to look at it's like ivory colored bill with a black tip Red throat, orange belly, orange breast, yellow belly, uh, blue rump, olive green wings, black tail. It's just a rainbow coloured bird. And they do the, the, the male and female look identical, but they do this thing called an antiphonal duet, where the males stand next to each other on a branch and the male just nods to the female and then goes, ah, and he jumps up. Then the female goes, ah, and she jumps up. The male goes, ah, ah. ah it took me it turns to jump up and down, make this noise, and it accelerates. It's like a rain ambulance in the rainforest. And I did this impersonation, and this guy Robson, have you ever thought of a career in television? And I I, I kind of hadn't really. But then an old mate of mine from Nottingham University, my first degree, was a producer at the BBC Naturalist Unit. So I'm I was kind of quite ill from all these weird diseases I've had, because one of my nicknames is Britain's most diseased man, with all these weird diseases I've picked up. And I was skint and I was a bit homesick. So I moved back home and moved down to Bristol and then wheedled my way into television. And I had this showreel of me doing this impersonation of these birds and touted this tape around while trying to get a job as a researcher. And I got work as a presenter on Channel 5 incredibly quickly. So I did two one hours. I did a whole series, and then Channel Five dropped me like a cup of cold sick. So I got a job as Bill Oddie's researcher on various programmes. And then the One Show, uh, you know, an opportunity came up on the One Show, and I've been doing it for fifteen, sixteen years, and haven't looked back. So yeah, it's kind of a long circuitous route, but um, it's an amazing job doing telly. I'm very lucky to, to still be doing it. It's very privileged, and that's where I kind of keep my feet on the ground. I, you know. I could be dropped at any time. So I just work hard, never piss anybody off and just, you know, just really, really enjoy the job. And I think the
0: first time I saw you on telly, I think it was Nature's Top 40. Yeah. How was, was that? And there was a, or was it Nature's Calendar? Nature's
2: Calendar, the Nature's Top... That was just before I got the One show. So I got that yeah. and then the kind of One show landed. On. So that was, yeah, 40 half hours around Britain with Chris Packham, Yola Williams uh sanjida o'connell and a lady called janet sumner so i think f- uh, the, the two ladies don't i don't think they do any well at presenting anymore the three blokes are still still rocking the free world yeah. some are rocking it more than others but we're all hanging in there yeah i think
0: was the first time i saw yolo williams on tv as well thinking about it because he'd done yeah. much of the welsh stuff up to that point mm. and so we obviously don't get so much of that in england but i remember him standing next to a four meter high wood ant's nest I think that's what caught my attention on that program but because you wrote the book you wrote the book for that didn't you because I've got that on my bookshelf
2: I did yeah Neil was uh, Chris was too too busy um Yolo's Welsh um (laughs) no I'm joking (laughs) of
1: course
2: uh no yeah I I I I wrote the whole book because I was the only one who wanted to do it and that's one of the first books I wrote actually it's it's a good so yeah it was great for me I've I've used it as
0: a um, as a tick list of things to see and I think I've done most of them now there's um, a few I haven't done I've I was never seen ask adders
2: I've never seen adders dancing Oh, that's that's, um, all, not on my, that's on my list to see
1: Oh I I know a site that there it's not guaranteed but there is a site not too far from you actually I know
2: all the Mendip sites right. so I've just never seen it mm. I just mean you have to it. kind of go every day for like you just have to be lucky I think I know a good yeah. a few good Mendip adder sites Vic But um, I've I've just never caught up with it. I think there's maybe one other I haven't seen. I can't remember which which one it is, but I've seen most of them, courtesy of The One Show, because I've just done everything, been everywhere. I mean, David Attenborough's meant to be the world's most travelled man, but I reckon I've been to more places in Britain than he has. I've just been everywhere. I mean, for example, Outer Hebrides. we sailed past it to go right out, uh, a few years ago, sailed past the Outer Hebrides, the Western Isles, to go right out past, Saint Kilda, past Rockall, to go to the um, uh, where the ocean drop off is to look for sperm whale, and we sail past the Outer Hebrides. It's like Barra, Benbecula, South Uist, North Uist, Lewis, Harris, the Shants, Monarch, Sulaigear, Saint Kilda. I've done a lot. i I'm, I'm so so lucky. So yeah, I, you know, Britain's brilliant. The only Scottish island
0: I've done is Aaron on a field trip in A-level. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, Aaron's one of
2: the few I don't, I don't know very well, yeah. but, yeah, I've been to most of the others. That's a geology hotspot.
1: Well, I, I li- lived on Easdale for eight months, so...
2: Where's Easdale?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what everyone says. Have you ever heard of the World Stone Skimming Championship? I have
2: skimmed a few stones, Victoria, but I'm not familiar with the skimming um, so championships. It
1: is one. It's one of the oldest old slate quarrying islands. So you kind of you have to go up to Oban and then down, and you go over bridge over yeah. the Atlantic, right down the end, park your car, get on the ferry, the five-minute mm-hmm. boat ride over to Eastdale Island because it's a it's a car-free island. Wow. And it's yeah, just just off there. I lived on there for eight months and worked for a company. That sounds there. amazing. There's a wildlife guy. Oh, you've been somewhere that Mike so hasn't. Uh,
0: <laughs>
2: always places yeah. to go, always things it's, to see.
1: It, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it has the the best pub that made the best Mars bar crispy cake in the I'm world going. on it. That sounds like a
2: field
0: so, trip.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I did,
1: would when you have a field see, podcast the, out there? The Whirlpools. Yeah, the let's cor- do it. Cor- the, the core of and whirlpools as well which oh core i've
2: heard of the core that's yeah okay
1: yeah. yeah so we yeah so i i used to run the trip i used to be a guide on the trips that would go to the whirlpools and we put the boat in the whirlpool and swim it swing it around and stuff so. see i did that there for we months. go i mean all these cool places <laughs> i've
2: not been to and i thought well, i was well traveled there we go i'm going <laughs> this summer Do, Yeah. get to. sucked into the whirlpool you
1: need to yeah there, there's specific times but yeah if you if you if you go and let me know and i'll uh i'll give you the contact details happy
2: details days over.
1: and the time and the times to get the whirlpools because they don't run all the time you need
2: insider knowledge for the whirlpools right I, I'll, I'll come back you to you on do. that one thank yeah. you top tip
1: yeah yeah but it's the third largest naturally forming whirlpool area see, there the we world.
2: go there's just so much to see in britain that we just people just don't know about yeah but the one show
0: what was the favorite feature you did
2: Oh, oh, crikey. I and mean, we have done a lot. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the most popular film, the most popular wildlife items, I've done seven films on peregrines, I've done six on waterfalls. So they're probably the two most common animals i film. Ever... The best film I've ever done on the one show was uh, we filmed orcas, just uh, just south of Rome. And the one show sometimes can be a little bit risk-averse at, potentially really exciting films, but ones that have a big element of risk, i.e. in the fact that you won't see anything. But they went they went for on a punt that these, the West Coast community of orcas were knocking around rum. And we went up there and we linked up with them, and we linked up with them when the sea was like mercury. And it was just one of those days where, you, it's, like, it's like where you pull the one-armed bandit and you get three cherries. It was one of those days. It was It was like flat calm, so we could see them beautifully. We get amazing shots and they started um, drowning harbor porpoise and we filmed them drowning a harbor porpoise we didn 't realize what we were looking at until slightly later and then um, and then they, they must have killed one of the harbor porpoise under the water, and this massive piece of meat, which was half a harbor porpoise, just surfaced right next to the boat, it was like bloody jaws and then this this orca came in, and it just basically... The cameraman was right next to me on the starboard side of the boat. I was right next to him, and the piece of meat floated up about three metres in front of the boat. And this orca came in, and just like it was like Jaws. It just grabbed it and then sunk down into the depths with it. And the cameraman filmed it, and they just turned the camera around to me, and I was like, that is the most thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> And for once that is hyperbole, (laughs) it was the most remarkable thing I have ever seen in my entire life. And we got it in Britain. And the researchers who are working on orcas who've filmed, um, been out with uh, the West Coast community a lot, they've never seen them hunting. And we saw them drowning and eating harbour porpoise. It was amazing. Wow. Norwegian mugwort and orcas. (laughs) (laughs) The two best moments. Oh, dear, there we go. I'm just thinking about it. Now I've just like got a smile on my face, thinking about it, thinking that's the joy about wildlife. I mean, you can go out lots of times and, you know, I always learn something or I always see something a little bit interesting. But if you put the hours in every now and again, you will just get blown out of the water. And that was one occasion where we were just like, oh, I just can't get any better than that. Take me home. I'm done. Wonderful.
1: OK, Mike, do you have any tips for kind of aspiring naturalists writers presenters anyone that wants to kind of get into the field
2: in the words of nike just do it i think you just gotta just gotta i think presenting is a really tricky one because i mean it's a very crowded marketplace there's not many opportunities to be a to be a presenter certainly on broadcast but i mean kids are so techno technophilic these days I mean, there's this kind of podcast and there's, and there's certainly YouTube and uh, loads of people are doing stuff on Twitter and on Instagram. So I think if you want to kind of do stuff on camera, uh, then just use use and abuse social media, I think, just to kind of get yourself in 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 the um, eye. And I think writing is just a lot of reading, although I, I actually don't read much fiction at all. I only read natural history, to be honest. I read natural history and I read news world news and journalism. Um, but uh, I think just, I've got better, I've got a much better writer from practice. I'm really quite slow um, and I've got slightly faster. And I find actually I'm a, naturally a much better editor than I'm a writer, so the first draft is really difficult. But when I've got that first draft down, I like chiseling it and honing it and shaping it and making it all linked together. So I think it's just, it sounds really trite and really obvious, but you've just got to just keep going at it and not take no for an answer, certainly for presenting, certainly for writing. People all the time tell me I wouldn't be able to get a job as a presenter, and I just go round them and ask their bosses or ask the next person on in the line to them. You've got to be... to To do these professions like writing and presenting, which are very competitive, where a lot of people want to do them, where there are relatively few opportunities, you've just got to stick at it and just wear them down by attrition and just uh, and just not take no for an answer so i think and 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 and, and it's also as well uh, it's particularly in television and writing just get on with people i mean it's a networking they're both networking businesses and i'm mediocre at lots and lots of things but I'm, i'm a half decent networker so i'm always good at getting on with people so i think if you're a good networker that massively helps and it's easy because networking wildlife because I'm really interested in wildlife. I love natural history, so talking to people about wildlife is is just what I love doing anyway. So, but networking is is quite important. But yeah, just get on with it. People who ask me how to be a presenter, they're not going to be. They're not going to do it. Because the answer is, by hook or by crook, any way you can. Meet a producer, how can I do that? I've done this on YouTube, can I send you this link? All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. If someone asks me how to be a writer or how to be a presenter, they're not going to do it because they're just doing it the lazy way. I didn't ask anyone, I just kind of got in there and just just went for it and didn't know for an answer.
0: Yeah, I just started a podcast, got one of my friends to join me
2: and made no money, but it's good fun yeah uh, yeah yeah absolutely
1: three years yeah. later three and a half years later <laughs> i
2: mean what have you done 80 you've done 80 podcasts that is quite the back catalogue that's amazing you guys should be very proud yeah, of yourselves and i think
0: we're up to a qu- not quite a quarter of a million listens so it's not too bad not too bad fantastic i think they're here for yeah. than me, but and the wildlife but there we go <laughs> despite me being on the podcast we got <laughs>
2: Well, if just a small percentage of them would buy my lovely book, 1,000 shades <laughs> of green, then I'd be doing brilliantly. Oh, anyway, well, a lot of them repeat listers. It's kind of just nice to it, chat though, to yeah. you guys.
0: <laughs> <laughs> on a more specific question, probably for my own uses, <laughs> when you were writing this book, did you sort of go on a trip and then write some notes after each trip? Because I remember walking around... With Stephen Moss when he's writing his books and he's a very prolific writer, he's a dictaphone.
2: He is prodigious.
0: Yeah, he ta- has dictaphone. And he takes notes as he goes round, and I'm I'm just not. I, I always try and do it. that's why I'm oh, it not a brilliant recorder. It's because I get too distracted. When I'm going to be focusing on things, I'm like, oh, I'll get a picture. Oh, oh, yeah. and then the, I record on my phone. is is brilliant for that. So the thing that saved me as a recorder is that. I can just whip out my phone and quickly put it on our record and carry on with what I'm doing. But were you methodical with it at all? Were you um, like writing down notes after each day or did you just think of it a year later and write it down on a paper or
2: It's a really good question, Neil. I I'm not like Stephen Moss, I'm not as prolific as Stephen, I'm not as organised as Stephen, I'm not as intelligent as Stephen. He's so damn annoying. <laughs> um, I mean he's my ex boss <laughs> and I, I I adore him. I saw him a couple oh, of weeks yeah. ago. But uh, what I did was um, I kept a very, very extensive spreadsheet of all the plants that I saw along the way. So I had a massive, big, what do they call it? I'm I'm trying to look on my bottom now. I did a massive, big numbers spreadsheet because I work on Mac. So every time I got back, I make I took a little notebook with me and I'd make some notes on the way, or sometimes on my phone on the on the Apple on the Apple Notes, and then um, I'd write up all the plants that I saw. And then any little notes that I had to remember, like took me for ages to find this plant or couldn't believe how small it was or trod on it before I found it. So, And also as well, I'd, I'd write a few extra remarks about what the weather was like and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's amazing through that list of over a thousand plus plants, just reading that that bit of information, it would all bring back. So I didn't write a lot of extensive notes about what the weather was like and but just a few notes on each plant that I saw on that massive spreadsheet I was able to remember it, and I wrote the book from that spreadsheet
0: Because when I did the dragonflies there was people going oh you're going to write a book things that's what everyone does on these things you know you get the mm. orchid year and all those sort of books and the yeah um, the butterfly aisles was it and stuff like that and I, Patrick I did toy of it and then I lost confidence because you know I'm not the greatest writer in the world and but what I have done is I've wrote, wrote a few notes and a few bits and pieces just in case. And of course I've filmed it, so I've made lots of mini docs that I'm putting on YouTube slowly <laughs> because editing video is worse than editing text. Yeah. And podcasts, it turns out. Because that forced me to be a better cameraman. I can now manual focus on dragonflies in flight, for goodness sake. So um Wow You know, which I couldn't do before. <laughs>
2: But, but I think if you want to write and they're and yeah. just doing a blog, an online blog and yeah, you know, I did wonder get people that. to feed you back and your writing mm. will improve from practice. My writing it's has definitely got better. It's finding the
0: time, especially when you're a yeah. parent. <laughs> yeah. Always yeah,
1: the thing. Neil, you know, you can always send the stuff to me because I know when I wrote, when I did my book, I actually did species by species. I picked the species I wanted to put in it and I did it bit by bit. And I just did each species at a time. But, you know, you can always send it to me and I'll happily read through it and yeah.
0: Because I, I have to write four pages on scarce emerald damselfly, but in terms of explaining how I found it, and there's a few few things in nature, isn't it? You can go down the really artistically way of explaining it, but I'm very much a matter of fact explaining. Yeah. I haven't got that creative streak that a lot of people seem to have. So I
2: think the key is just the key is trying to connect it all together. Mm. I mean, I, I spoke to Dominic Cousins while I was writing the book, and Dominic's a brilliant writer. I, I, he's one of my favourite nature writers. He's funny, he's interesting, he's got a very really quirky way of writing, and he kind of m- makes it quite populist but doesn't dumb it down. I-, I think he's just tremendous. And he said, Mike, you're trying to write the hardest type of book. And then I went here and I saw this, and then I went there and I saw that. Yeah. And it's just the kind of like, if you're not careful, it becomes a bit like, this is what I saw here, and I did it, and then I went there and I saw that, and I went, and, and it's quite hard. And-, and actually, try each chapter I tried to kind of tackle a different group of plants or talk about a different problem or just just try to bring in themes and then try to interconnect those themes and the key to i think writing a book like that is just trying to link it all together i mean you watch comedians with their stand-up routine they're constantly back reffing and they're making it link all up seamlessly together so i think and that First and foremost, I just wrote down anything, and then I just got like almost like a. I just started chiseling away with like a hammer and chisel, and just trying to make it better and sharper and tighter and more interesting and more relevant. And that's um, that's what I'm best at. But yeah, it's it, it's actually great fun writing. I really really enjoy it now. I used to find it really it used to scare me, sitting down. But I mean, I've done I've done a BBC wildlife column for six seven years now, and I, I love doing that. It's just great fun. So you just I look forward to sitting down, and it's when you come up with a good line or a few good words or a nice way of saying things. It's a it's a buzz.
0: I do love because when we do a podcast on like the recent one we did on celandines or I did on phantom midges, what tends to happen is Vic goes away, she'll find some research she's already done on celandines, look up the folklore. And then I go on to Google Scholar and type in cylindine or the scientific name, which I can't think off the top of my head. What's lesser of cylindine, Mike?
2: Uh, Relunculus Vicaria. I'm a rain so, man so, for Latin names.
0: Google Scholar and then you can put things like, you know, pollination and stuff like that and the papers that come up on some of this stuff. And I, I love doing that, finding out stuff about things that I know well. And then you find this niche paper in some journal. And there's some brilliant study on how it heats itself up or, you know, And I just love doing that. So... I think I'm more of a researcher than a writer.
2: That's the joy of identifying something. Once you know what its scientific name is, then you just enter this portal of information and, and you're off. I'm a little bit more... I'm a bit of both of you, actually. I, like, I kind of quite like a bit of the folklore, but I like the geeky science stuff as well.
0: Oh, I love the folklore stuff, but um, Vic's much better at researching
2: that than <laughs> I know, me. I know how to do scientific research, but uh... Lesser a brilliant example because its old name is Pilewort. Yeah. Because yeah. it used to be used to because doctor's signatures it used to be used to cure piles. Absolute rubbish. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure you know that.
0: And the links to um, oh, is it what Wordsworth in my head? Is that that's not right? Is it?
2: it was yeah. his favorite yeah. flower yeah. it
0: was Wordsworth. where oh, i was right yeah. yeah and then and then they painted greater silene on his gravestone
2: they did and they they sculpted it but also that's the hilarious thing because uh, because actually it's not even a, in the same family it's mm. a, it's a member of the poppy family yeah. Yeah. not a member of the buttercup family astonishing dunces botanical dunces yeah
0: <laughs> I, I think we've been talking for the best part of an hour and a half. I think we'll wrap it up there, Mike, because um, otherwise it's going to be a four
2: part series. Well, I'll say, Neil and Victoria, is good luck editing this <laughs> rubbish. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's all
1: down to Neil. I'm still restricted yeah. on computer. I'm not allowed to sit, I'm not supposed to work at a computer for more than an hour a day. So.
2: Oh, God, you've yeah. broken the rules and regs today, Victoria. Well,
1: I'm not working. Yeah. I'm actually sitting here staring at my computer. I'm not working on my computer.
2: Ah, there we go. Are oh, you all right now? I'll let you off.
0: Well, it's been great talking to you, Mike. I'll probably leave this last um, half hour almost completely unedited, which should be quite fun for people to listen to. Uh, (laughs) So, thanks so much for coming on, Mike. I hope the book does well. It's just like I say, I can vouch for the first twenty-five percent of it <laughs> being very good, um, and I have heard good things from other people.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting through the rest of it as well. It's uh, it's my accompaniment to my work, so I stick it on and oh, then sit fantastic. there, make my animals, do my drawings and whatever, and listen to you go through your book. oh uh, well, thank
2: you for giving me the opportunity to have a chat about it, and absolutely cracking to catch up with you both, and uh, strengthen and on it, and good luck with the rest of the podcast for for the oncoming year.
0: Hope you enjoyed that episode.